Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, Dr. Shazer and I continue our conversation about how the book of Exodus picks up several creation themes. The more we see of those repeated images or recognize the patterns, the text becomes more and more beautiful. Dr. Nicholas Shazer is the professor of New Testament and Jewish studies. And although he has a course called Israelite Creation in Context, we're going to focus on some articles he has written for Israel Bible Center about the book of Exodus. We will talk about Moses and Jesus, the presence of God, and the ultimate temple building project. Lean in and enjoy. Since we're talking about seeing, uh, going back to the Genesis 1 text, where as God speaks and order is brought to chaos, he sees something and calls it good. And that seeing and good, they're both really simple Hebrew words, but they're repeated in some fairly important ways, I would say. Um, Even, for instance, in Genesis 2, basically God is saying this, the knowledge of tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not good for you. When you eat of it, right, you will die. And then we get in chapter 3, Eve sees the tree and calls it good. You know, so it's like, taking what God just said is bad and her judgment, like trumping that judgment, right? But so Exodus plays also this seeing something, what is good, and it kind of moves the narrative forward. So can we talk about that too? What kind of connections you see in the seeing and calling something good? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of things that I think we should unpack here, and that is what the meaning of good is in Genesis chapter one, because it it has overflow. Cindy, you mentioned Genesis chapter two and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That that narrative in Genesis chapter two of, of Adam and Eve eating from that forbidden fruit, it can seem kind of weird and almost like nonsensical, because if we understand the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to mean the knowledge of right and wrong, like an ethical revelation by Adam and Eve, the couple problems emerge. And that is, I mean, I think the most important one is, well, God commanded Adam. I want to to remind people that it's Adam who actually gets the command, uh, not Eve, if you read the text carefully. Though Eve does know of the command, so we don't know where she got it, whether Adam told her about it or whatever, and then she kind of expands it to say, not only should we not eat it, but we shouldn't touch it, which I think is a very good interpretational move on Eve's part. We can talk about that later if we have time. But it's clear that they get the commandment 
not to do something. So God doesn't want them doing something. So they know that to transgress that command would be wrong because God clearly doesn't want it to happen. So that is, if they have no understanding of ethics or what's right or wrong, then God giving them a command is really unfair and doesn't make a lot of sense. So our other alternative is to say, well, is that what the knowledge of good and evil means in this context? And all we have to do as good Bible readers, this is what Bible scholars do who do this for a living, is they look at that word good. In this case, it's tov in Hebrew, very common word. And you look at the other instances of tov in Genesis 1 and 2. And what you find is that tov never means ethical. It never means moral good in the sense of like how the Greek philosophers or like Plato would use the term. Rather, good in the creation narratives means well-organized or good aesthetically, for instance. Let, let me just read the, the Hebrew of, of the third verse of the Bible. So it says, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light that it was good. And then it says, That God uh, separated between the light and the darkness. Now, the first thing that God says is good is light. Light can't be ethically good or bad. <laughs> light has no ethics. It has no conscience. It has no moral system. It's definitely not what God means. When God sees the seas separated from the dry land and notes that that's good, that's not a moral judgment call either. Indeed, none of the creation account in Genesis 1 has anything to do with ethical good or moral good. When you keep reading into Genesis chapter 2, you see good showing up as well, as you said, Cindy, and what you see is things like God making the trees sprouting up for food. The trees are good for food, according to Genesis 2.9. Well, again, the trees are not morally or ethically good. It says the land of, of Havilah has good gold. Well, gold is not ethically or morally good. Finally, in Genesis 2, it says it's not good for the human being to be alone, Rather, God says, okay, I'll make a, like an equal counterpart as a balance. God's not making a value judgment about ethics. It's unethical for the man to be alone. That's not what God means. Rather, God creates the woman as like a relational balance that achieves like this gender equality and equilibrium. So a better way to look at good and how it's functioning in this in these chapters in Genesis 1 and 2 is of good means well-organized. Good means put together correctly. Good means functional. That would be good. Um, you know, it, uh, the trees are good for food. The trees function as good for the purposes of human consumption. That is, the trees are functioning in a proper way. That's what tov means. So when we go back and we look at the tree of the quote-unquote knowledge of good and evil, Tov vara, by the way, that word for evil is ra, good or bad. It has nothing to do with ethics. Adam and Eve already know basic fundamentals of what's right and wrong. There are other words in Hebrew for right or rightness, like tzedek, for example, that, all sorts of different options. That's not what the phraseology is doing in these chapters. So a better way to look at it would be, it's the tree of the knowledge of, of order and disorder, or functionality and chaos. That's really how we should understand that material. So, so that's, that's good, okay, in Genesis chapter one. But when we go to Exodus, we see a really interesting parallel between 
objects that are seen as good. So I already read through Genesis chapter one. This is, I'll just read it again. Genesis one, four, it says of God, it says, Vayar Elohim et haor ki tov. Now, literally, if I'm translating that into English from Hebrew, it says, and God saw the light that it was good. Okay. So there's our phrase. And then if you go to Exodus chapter two, verse two, it's talking about Moses's mother. And it says that Moses's mother conceives and she bears a son. And then it says, it says this in Hebrew, and she saw him that he was good. It's the exact same Hebrew that we get in Genesis chapter one, when God sees the light, that it was good. So this is precise terminology here. In this case, you know, it's, it's funny, speaking of English translations and how they tend to bungle this stuff up, in most English translations, it's like, oh, Moses' mom saw Moses, that he was a beautiful boy. Yes, it's I was like, going to say, because I looked this up, okay. and it, that's what it was. He was healthy and beautiful. Like, he's this robust, chubby, wonderful, cute <laughs> yeah. baby. Cherubic. Yeah. Yes, yes. Even though yes. cherubim are not little right, chubby exactly. babies. exactly, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so the, the English, again, it, it just like the locust covering the face of the earth, the English is glossing, is, is, is doing something that it thinks, the translators are doing something they think is good for the reader, which is make it more understandable, make it easier to read, but that's actually doing a horrible disservice to the original Hebrew authors of this material who wanted you to get that connection between God saw the light, Kitov, that it was good. Moses' mom saw Moses that he was good. And so what is the linkage they're telling us? Well, A, it is, again, recycling the creation language and putting it into a different context. So it's reminding us, just like be fruitful and multiply, it's reminding us that Exodus knows Genesis and is rerunning Exodus as a new creation narrative. So here's where the rubber meets the road on this. What Moses is going to do in getting his people out of Egypt is going to be the equivalent of a new creative act. And what is it going to create? Well, it's not going to create light. It's not going to create fish. It's not going to create seas. It's going to create a nation. And the creation of Israel is on par with God's creation of the whole world. That's what the writer of Exodus is trying to say. More so, Moses is the light of the world, according to Exodus. That should be a phrase that is well known to New Testament readers, because Jesus in John's gospel says, I am the light of the world. Where's Jesus getting that terminology? Where's Jesus getting that idea? It's not a Jesus original. As often is the case with, I would say, 99% of what we get from Jesus in the Gospels, but rather Jesus is taking that idea that God positions Moses as a new, um, uh, as the new light of the world, and and Mo and Jesus in many ways is a recapitulation of Moses. You know, Moses frees Moses' people from the slavery to the Egyptians. Jesus frees people from the slavery of sin. Uh, and so Jesus is a new Moses figure. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, not only should we go, wow, that's great. Jesus is the light of the world. Isn't Jesus is Jesus wonderful and illuminating? I mean, very true. Yes. But, 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 <laughs> but, the, but the clued in Bible reader who knows Genesis and who knows Exodus is also saying, okay, Jesus is rerunning Moses here. Jesus is going to be another savior figure, just like Moses was. And God's entire creative action is pushing us towards Moses and then by proxy towards Jesus.
I can imagine that maybe as a couple brains short circuit there for just a moment, that some people might hear a statement that Moses is on par with Jesus. So can we clarify what it means for for Jesus to be the Moses figure? And we have like Matthew, the book of Matthew, and you and I have talked about this on a previous podcast because Matthew does a lot to shape Jesus with the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he looks so much like Moses, you can't even ignore it. So that's not really a foreign concept, but saying Moses is the light of the world, Jesus is the light of the world might be a little bit discombobulating. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know what? It would it should be discombobulating if I were saying it. Right. <laughs> if, 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 if Nick Shazer were standing up here and telling you this and asserting it as a as a fact with no textual data to go on, you should raise your eyebrow and pretty much dismiss me. What I'm actually saying is I'm not saying anything. The, the biblical text is saying this. So if you've got an issue with the comparative that John makes as Jesus in the light of the world versus Moses is the light of the world, your issue is not with what I'm saying. It's actually with what the biblical authors are saying. That's just a that's just a data fact, you know. I, just, I love that response so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I but yeah. So again, you know, as a teacher of this material, uh, sometimes you know people understand us as teachers, Cindy, you know, to be angling for something, you know, to be to be you know kind of getting in our own personal views under the radar or something because it makes us feel good. I mean, I think maybe some scholars do that, but I'm certainly not one to do it. My concern is with explicating the text as closely as I possibly can, because that's my authoritative reservoir of data. And whatever it says, I want to affirm. In this case, it's let's just say this. It is deeply obvious that the writer of Exodus in the Moses story is paralleling God's creation of light at the creation. So the writer of Exodus is saying that Moses is the light of the world. John, who's deeply knowledgeable about Exodus and the Moses narrative, um, is saying Jesus, too, is the light of the world. In fact, it's John who says in John chapter 5, if you believed Moses, Jesus says you'd believe me. Well, John John's version of the gospel means that very literally. That is, if you were to read the Moses narrative closely enough, there's no reason why you should not assent to Jesus as the light of the world. That's what John is trying to make the point of. So if we actually take the, the Moses stuff out of there, it makes John's Jesus less potent, less important, less exalted. The Moses link actually makes Jesus more exalted. So it's not to say that Jesus of Nazareth and Moses are like, you know, Jesus. Moses is not whatever, the, the um, enfleshed version of the eternal word of the Lord per John's prologue. Uh, I, I'm not saying that, and we're not making an ontological comparative. What we're saying is Jesus, as Jesus does in Matthew, in John, Jesus recapitulates Moses as well. It's just that John is highlighting it in a slightly different way than Matthew. And both of those presentations of Jesus vis-a-vis -vis Moses should be well understood and accepted and uh, you know encouraged. And it's really great because to go back to John, because you mentioned John is telling this Exodus story with Jesus is the light of the world parallels with Moses. But John, there's also the very Exodus-y language of, and he came and tabernacled among us, which oh again, gosh. it's Exodus language, Absolutely. which is Genesis language, which <laughs> yeah. is 
incredibly that's, beautiful. That's right. Or where we, when we get Jesus on the cross and it, you know, that he's, he's died on the cross and they need to get the other people on the cross down off the cross because it's Shabbos and they need to bury them and they break the legs of the thieves next to him and they come to Jesus and they, they don't break his legs because he's already dead. They don't need to break his legs uh, to kill him. And then John throws in this thing. Oh, this this fulfills what was written. Not one of its not one of his bones will be broken. Well, the his there in the original story of Exodus is the Passover lamb. That the Passover lamb, which is really the conduit of their exodus from Egypt, that you don't break the bones of that Passover lamb before you eat it. John is saying, as with the Passover lamb, so with Jesus. So that Jesus' death is a new exodus scenario. John is running this all day long. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John 129. That's John's thesis statement. And that thesis statement only makes sense if we read the Passover narrative in Exodus. So it's what's called narrative patterning or recapitulation. And the gospel writers engage in this just as much as the writer of Exodus engages in it vis-a-vis Genesis. Speaking of tabernacling among us, We have in both creation narratives the significance of God's presence with his people. And so if Exodus is also a creation story, there has to be some kind of allowance there for God's presence. So how do we see that in the book of Exodus? Just like different words and phrases are paralleled between Exodus and Genesis, also kind of large concepts and themes we also see paralleled. So at the creation, when we get into Genesis chapter two, we've got God creates the whole world. And according to Genesis one, the whole world is God's temple. That's great. In Genesis two, we get kind of a drilling down into some more specifics and some like gradations of geography, which is you've got the whole world. You've got where Adam is made. This is Genesis two, seven, where God breathes God's spirit into this being and this being becomes living. Then what does God do? God plants a, like a garden in Eden. So you've got the world, then you've got Eden, and then you've got a garden within Eden. And that's where God plants the first human beings. And so there's there's like kind of like concentric circles of locality. And that's where God is in the garden. We read in Genesis chapter three, that God's walking around in the garden, meeting with Adam and Eve in the garden, speaking. So it's like the closest that you can possibly get to God. So we've got that kind of circular uh, geography in in Genesis, and we get something similar in Exodus. We start with creative language cropping up in the Exodus narrative, but as I I said, they are in Egypt. They are not in their land. They're not in the land of Canaan, where a lot of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis had sojourned. And so now they're in a completely different place. And actually God pulls them out of there. And that symbolizes the first step in closeness to God, getting them out of the land of Egypt's gods so that God can reestablish them in the land of promise. And as we, so they come out of Egypt and where do they come to? They come to the wilderness. What's really cool about the wilderness is that, and I've got articles on IBC's website to this end as well, is that much of the wilderness narrative recycles Eden story language so that, yeah, the wilderness is a place where the Israelites are wandering around for 40 years. They're grumbling. They're in conflict with God and with Moses. A lot of things go wrong. But at the same time, the wilderness is kind of like where God is closest to the people ever since Eden. 
And, and a lot of the language and the concepts of Eden, they come back around in the wilderness. So God is so close to them in the wilderness. So it kind of functions as like an Edenic style place, even though, once again, it's in a different context. It's almost in an inverted context. It's not a context that we would think. It's ironic, but it's still there. And then within the wilderness, God tells them to create a tent of meeting, a tabernacle, a camp, an area in which God comes down into the into the tabernacle and, and dwells among the people. Oftentimes, like for example, in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, it says that Moses goes into the tent of meeting and speaks with God, and Moses sees God face to face as a friend speaks to a friend. And it says that Moses beholds the temunah of God. Temunah in Hebrew means the form of God. Uh, so there's such a super closeness between the Israelites and God in that temp in that kind of proto-temple meeting area in the wilderness. So we see the same concentric circles getting closer and closer to God. And and indeed, with the building of the tabernacle narrative, um, in you know, this is, you know, say starting in Exodus, the actual building process is Exodus 35, I want to say, is when that actually begins. That too is is there's so much creation language in that narrative that it's it's rerunning all the creative themes that we get with God in the first chapters of Genesis. So from the you know and the, and so that's 35 to 40 in Exodus and that's where Exodus ends. So indeed all of Exodus is a rerunning of creation. It is a creation narrative 2.0 which is presenting Israel, God's special chosen people as, as you know, the, the main focus of God's new creation in Exodus. If you love conversations like this, join us at IBC, where you have access to many amazing courses and magazine articles and roundtable talks. You can dig into the details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing a great job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 